Well, what a remarkable reality, Father, that you, our great God, would die for us so ungodly. Father, thank you for that line that we just sang, reminding us of Paul's words from the book of Romans, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thank you so much for the cross. Thank you so much for the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Father, thank you for this gathering now. And as we open our Bibles, I pray that you would challenge our hearts, that we would walk in victory and in obedience to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, has God been answering your prayers? And how's your faith? And are you overcoming doubt? That's what we've been talking about for a number of weeks. And as I reference with some abruptness, we're just going to wrap it up today with three important spiritual principles about prayer that I trust will encourage you and I trust will encourage you to keep growing in your faith and to overcome doubt. We long for our prayers to be answered, don't we? And we long to be men and women who, when we pray, have the kind of faith that God moves. I ran into a, a kind of a funny, interesting story that I thought kind of fit the mindset of, of what we long to see in answer to our prayers. The girl's name was Brenda, and she was on a rock climbing trip for the very first time in her life, and she had... Uh, gotten about halfway to the top of a tremendous granite cliff. She was standing on a ledge where she was taking a breather, and as she rested there, her belay rope, her safety rope, had some slack in it, and it, it swung around and popped her in her eye and knocked out her contact lens. Great, she thought. Here I am on a rock ledge, hundreds of feet from the bottom and hundreds of feet to the top of this cliff, and now my sight is blurry. She looked and she looked, hoping that somehow the contact lens had landed on the ledge near her, but it wasn't there. She felt the panic rising in her, so she began praying. She prayed for calm, and she prayed that she might find her contact lens. When she got to the top, she had a friend examine her eye and her clothing for the lens, but it was not to be found. And although she was calm now that she was at the top, she was saddened because she just couldn't see clearly across the beautiful range of mountains. Right at that time, she thought of a Bible verse, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. And she thought to herself, Lord, and she prayed, Lord, you can see all these mountains and you know every stone and leaf and you know exactly where my contact lens is. Please help me. Later, when they had hiked down the trail to the bottom of the cliff, they met another party of climbers that was just starting up the face of the cliff, and one of them shouted out, Hey, you guys, anybody lose a contact lens? <laughs> well, that would be startling enough, but you can't imagine how the climber saw the contact lens. An ant was moving slowly across the twig on the face of a rock, carrying it. <laughs> For Brenda, the story didn't really end there. When she went home and told her father, who was a cartoonist, uh, she told him all about the incredible story of the ant, the prayer, and the contact lens. And he drew a cartoon of an ant lugging that contact lens with the caption, Lord, I don't know why you want me to carry this thing, 
I can't eat it, and it's awfully heavy, but if this is what you want me to do, I'll carry it for you. Well, what a good answer to prayer for Brenda that day. Don't you wish that God would answer your prayers like that? Lord, my contact lens, Lord, my husband, Lord, my wife, Lord, my kid. And in about 30 minutes, bam. Well, he often doesn't choose to answer like that, does he? And so we've been been probing this subject of prayer, trying to get a little better handle on what our Lord meant where in Matthew 21, when we were working our way through Matthew, which we still continue to do, um, and did I tell you that we're going to continue to do that this summer? Um, did I say that already this service? Um, the last three Sundays in June, Jim Shupi's going to do three weeks, and he's going to do the next three parables that finish out chapter 21 and start chapter 22. I'm going to come back in July and August, finish the rest of Matthew up to chapter 24, and Lord willing, it's going to work out just right that at the, the Sunday after Labor Day, we're going to begin a series on the end times and the last days, and what does the Bible teach, and specifically, what did our Lord teach? Because that's what chapters 24 and 25 are about in Matthew, specific, detailed instruction from our Lord in what we call the Olivet Discourse, on how the world's going to end and what the last days are going to be like. That'll be our fall series, Lord willing. I think you'll find it very helpful. So I trust that you'll also enjoy as you come and go from vacations, be as faithful as possible, but that you'll enjoy wrapping up the book of Matthew. In chapter 21, where we left off a few weeks ago, before we started this detour on prayer, our Lord had announced in no uncertain terms, as he cleared out the temple and kicked over the tables, that his house would be a house of prayer. And so we asked ourselves the logical question springing from that, are we as Christ's church a house of prayer? Immediately on the heels of that teaching, our Lord goes to the fig tree that had leaves but no figs, condemns it, it withers from the roots up immediately. The disciples, most impressed about that, ask the Lord, how did he make that happen? He looks at them and says, in Matthew 21, if you just had faith and would not doubt, whatever you ask, I'll give you. So we kind of bounced off of that, and for several weeks we've been exploring what, what prayer looks like and what does it mean to have faith. We looked at Jehoshaphat and his prayer of faith. We looked at Hannah, her prayer of faith. We looked at a number of principles as to other reasons God doesn't answer prayer besides a lack of faith. And today I want to wrap it up with three important spiritual truths, if you want to get your notes ready, um, that I think will help you. And maybe to your disappointment, you're going to find out that the Bible doesn't have a formula of th three or four or five little easy steps to grow your faith and overcome doubt. There's more principles on prayer that I think you'll see that when you exercise these principles, you will grow in your faith. You will overcome doubt. To begin with, though, will you take a second and turn way at the end of your Bible to 1 John chapter 5. We've referenced this verse, and what I wanted to drive home, even as we begin this morning, is that in 1 John, okay, this is the epistle of John, almost by the book of Revelation at the end of your New Testament. In 1 John chapter 5, in verse... 14, we have John 
emphasizing this same principle. One of the things we said early on was that this is a repeated principle in our New Testament. It's just not a fluky thing. We're, we're taught that if we ask in faith, it will happen. I wanted, to, I wanted to point out how John, and no doubt he had our Lord's words ringing in his ears as he wrote this, but John adds a very important qualifying phrase that I think you'll find helpful. Um, 1 John 5, beginning with verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that's towards God. We have a confidence towards God that if we ask, notice this, anything according to His will, He hears us. Okay, we're good with that. If we ask, He hears. Okay, it's the answering that we're worried about, right? We know His ears are, are tuned in. Notice the phrase, according to His will. In verse 15, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, then we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. So notice that John emphasizes the reality that you can count on him hearing it. And if you can count on him hearing it, you can count on the fact that you have your request. That is a profound reality. You raise your hand and you say, but wait a minute, Pastor Van, I've been praying for 17 years. It's not happening. Remember, we are bending our will to God's will in prayer. We are not forcing the hand of God. Do not be deceived at any level or do not be tricked in your thinking to thinking that somehow prayer is a magic wand or a magic formula that God will just move immediately and find your contact lens in the next 33 minutes. It might happen. It might not happen. And notice the qualifying phrase that John adds here where he says, according to his will. That's why we sang, didn't we, at the opening in the Lord's Prayer, that classic hymn. We sang, Lord, that your will in heaven would be done on earth. So as God has scribed in heaven his sovereign plan of the ages and his will is is unfolding that it would unfold here in our lives according to his plan. See, we're capable of messing it up, aren't we? But that God would unfold his will in our lives according to his will on earth as it is in heaven. Well, what I want us to do this morning is I want us to, to focus on three important spiritual truths about prayer that I trust will encourage your hearts we're going to use uh, uh, several different passages of Scripture. I hope I'll not weary you in turning in your Bibles. I hope you have a delight at some level of studying God's Word together. The first important principle we find in Luke chapter 18. It's in Luke chapter 18, and it's a parable. If you're taking your notes there, you'll want to write in that the principle is this. The first important spiritual truth is this. It is, don't give up. Don't give up. You've been praying and you've been asking God to answer your prayers and you're latching on to this reality that if I have faith and I don't doubt, God will answer my prayer and you're waiting. Well, I want you to see that our Lord himself reinforces this concept that not all prayer is answered in a hurry. In Luke chapter 18, we have a parable. Remember that a parable is generally a relatively short story. In this case, it's just eight verses. Um, or the story part of the parable part is even less. It's a short story that is told to the listeners in such a way that very quickly there's just enough detail that we can kind of connect 
Oh yeah, I get that. And it's driving home a spiritual principle. Generally, parables have one main point. It's important usually to not take parables to the, to the extreme and draw all kinds of points out of them. Usually our Lord is driving home one main point when he tells a story like this. All right, so it's a, it's a story that illustrates a spiritual principle. Let's read it. Luke 18 is our text. Our first important spiritual truth about prayer is, number one, don't give up. Here's the parable, Luke 18, 1. And he, Jesus, told them a parable to the effect, and he tells us right away what the point of the story is, that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Don't give up. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he, the judge, refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down. The ESV says, beat me down by her continual coming. Your Bible might say something like, weary me. Let's just stop right there and let's make sure we understand our characters in the story. The characters are, first of all, the judge, right? And our Lord, in his masterful ability to tell a story, um, gives us just the right amount of information that immediately we understand exactly what kind of a guy we're dealing with. And it's not a very pleasant person. This judge says he neither fears God nor does he respect man. So the idea there, when he doesn't fear God, we know that he's an immoral, amoral, self-centered, arrogant punk. I'll just say that. He doesn't respect people, so he doesn't care who you are, what your problem is, what your needs are. He just doesn't care. You got the picture. Second player is a widow. A widow. Now, we need to understand and relate to the fact that Widowhood in New Testament Bible times, in this Middle Eastern context, um, society, is a lot different than now. These widows did not have life insurance policies to collect, pensions, social security. They generally did not have homes that were paid for. Life became very difficult for widows in this context. And so they depended, and you're even going to see it in our next section that we look at, in point number two, in Acts chapter 6, you're going to see that widows depended on the church. They depended on their community, they depended on neighbors, they depended first and foremost on family members. In fact, even later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul will instruct uh, men to take care of their families, including the widows. I think it's a very valid principle even for today, but in this parable, as the Lord lays the foundation, and he's... He's cast the first player, the judge, and he's a really strong negative character. The second person is in juxtaposition to the judge, is perhaps one of the weakest, most vulnerable people in society, and it was this evidently aging widow. We don't know what her problem was other than it says she needed justice, end of verse 3, against an adversary. We don't need to know what the problem is. It could have been any kind of problem. But somehow she was under attack and she had an adversary. She had somebody who was out to get her, take advantage of her, abuse her, ruin her, making her life very difficult. She had evidently exhausted all of her options for solving her problem. And the only person that she knew who could handle her problem was this judge. This godless, arrogant creep of a judge. 
And notice what happens. Jesus is presenting now a concept, letter B, in in the response of the widow. So she keeps coming, verse 3, and even while he refused, afterward he says, verse 4, even though I don't fear God or respect me, and verse 5, because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. It's interesting that in the Greek grammar, a literal translation that would be accurate from the Greek to English would be, would be hit in the eye for beat down or weary. It's the idea of being punched in the eye. She just keeps punching, hitting him in the eye. She just keeps punching and punching and punching. Finally, he's had enough. I don't know what her problem is. I don't care about this woman, but she's wearying me. She's punching me in the eye. She's beating me down. Take care of her problem. And the Lord said, verse 6, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect? That would be his people, his church, his Christians, Christian people who follow Christ, the elect, who cry to him day and night, will he not give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, Jesus answers the rhetorical, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Okay, so there's a couple teachings here. There's a, a couple things we must see. The concept is that she kept coming and she kept coming. The concept is... By persevering, she got results. All right? Now notice that there is a contrast in the story. Lots of times when we we study a parable, we want to identify with the players in the story, right? We want to identify, okay, the judge, that's God, and then the widow is us. But in this story, the judge is not God. Uh, The judge is actually in contrast with God. That comes out of the story, doesn't it? It's in contrast with God. The That wicked old judge, he's nothing like God, is the point. Our Heavenly Father is exactly opposite of this judge. Where the judge doesn't care, the judge has no uh, interest in her personal needs. In juxtaposition is our Heavenly Father who... He will, not like this judge, but He will not delay long... He will speedily answer and meet the needs of his beloved. So the judge is in contrast with God, and the widow is in contrast with us. The widow, she knows where her need can be met, and so she keeps going. But remember, when Jesus opened the story, the point of the parable was that we ought always to pray and not faint. Then later in the story, he's saying, okay, the point of the story is keep praying, keep praying, don't give up, don't give up, persevere, persevere. And then he says, but I'll answer you speedily. Put that together. How does that work? Well... I think it has something to do with the way God views time versus the way we view time. It has something to do with the way God views the unfolding of His will in our lives where sometimes we're in a hurry and He's not in a hurry. I think it has to do with God's whole view of being able to make all things work together for good according to His will, not according to our will where we just want relief or we want instant change or we want our contact lens right now. Remember in 2 Peter chapter 3, it's referenced there that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. Listen, God is outside of time. Time is very relative to God. 
Most of the time, he's not in a hurry. And so the idea, so, so you're going to get to heaven and you're going to, you're taking your Bible with you because it's the eternal word. It's going to be in heaven. And you grab your Bible and you're looking for Jesus. Find Jesus. I got to talk to you. You said that you would answer prayer speedily. There it is right there. Speedily. And he'll say, well, how long did you pray? So I prayed 17 years. Is that a long time? We're now in eternity. Is that a long time? What is God doing all that time? You don't know what God's doing. You're not God. But Jesus said, keep praying. Keep praying. Keep praying. The conclusion is that prayer takes perseverance. Prayer takes perseverance. So, Pastor Van, no three-step formula for growing my faith and overcoming doubt? No, but the very words of our Lord Jesus as He instructs us that if you want to If you want to have faith, you pray. You keep praying in faith, believing. You persevere. You persevere. And by the way, don't you think it's pretty evident that part of the conclusion here in the teaching is that prayerlessness is often a direct result of faithlessness. And faithlessness is often the driving force behind our prayerlessness. Keep praying. As you pray, God begins to work. He begins to grow your faith. He begins to overcome your doubt. And he says, directly through the mouth of our Lord Jesus, a pretty reliable source, wouldn't you say? Persevere in prayer. Keep praying. Keep praying. Well, the second spiritual truth about prayer that we want to drive home today that will help us grow in our faith and overcome doubt. First of all, don't give up. All right? Don't give up. Keep praying. Persevere. Take it that we can do it. That's his teaching. Secondly, it's don't get distracted. Don't get distracted. We go to Acts for this. And as we turn to the book of Acts, remember that we're moving out of the Gospels now. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. So the Gospels, those four good news books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are recording the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus in real time. Essentially. Luke is a historian. He's recording a record. A researched record. The other three are eyewitnesses, Matthew, Mark, and John. When we get to the book of Acts, you notice that it's not spelled A-X-E. It's spelled A-C-T as in actions. And it is the record of the early church as it is established. So our Lord has now ascended into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. The Holy Spirit has descended, is indwelling believers. This is the apostolic era. The disciples are filled with power in the Holy Spirit. They're preaching. We're now into the church age. The local churches like ours are starting to spring up. They're now worshiping on Sunday morning. They're not worshiping on Saturday. They're not worried about the Sabbath. They're not keeping the Ten Commandments in the sense of, of Judaism. They keep the Ten Commandments out of a righteous heart in following Christ, but the church has begun and it's up and running and the apostles are leading. And when we get to chapter six of Acts, we recognize, first of all, that the church was growing. Letter A on your outline, the church was growing. Notice what's happening here. Let's read a little bit of this. Um, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, there it is, Followers of Christ were increasing. In fact, we know if we would look back in Acts chapter 4, we can see there that there was about 5,000 men in the church. And if there's 5,000 men, time you add women and children, the, the, the group of believers, the believing community at Jerusalem at this time had to be over 20,000 people. 
So God is at work. The disciples are preaching. More disciples are being made. People are being baptized. It's a wonderful time of power and authority on the part of the apostles. Um, there's a little bit of healing still going on. Uh, they're, they're able to preach in foreign languages. So people who are coming through Jerusalem are hearing the gospel in their own language. And they go home and they're part of the church back in, in other parts of Asia here. And uh, the church is full of love and they're gathering together. They're eating in one another's homes and they're growing in Christ. They're singing hymns together. They're under the apostles preaching um, but not only is the church growing, you want to see here, letter B, that the congregation is grumbling. The congregation was grumbling. Notice what's happening. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists all right, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, these Hellenist Jews were, they were of, of the Greek culture. Likely, some of them had been scattered from persecution early on, and some years had gone by, and they had moved out into the Greek culture, uh, into parts of Greece, away from Jerusalem, and they either spoke a different language, or they spoke uh, Greek, uh, they spoke Aramaic, or the Hebrew with a Greek accent, but they were identified with the Grecian Jews and then the Hebraic Jews that lived there in Jerusalem had never moved and they were part of the community there. Shame on the church, shame on them, but like is so prevalent and happens so often, what do we do? We identify uh, with the people with whom we're comfortable and they have a little bit of racism that's crept in here. Uh, they speak a little bit funny. They look a little bit different. I've told you this story many times, but it's just unbelievable how we'll cast judgment on people who are just a little bit different than we are. And I'm, why does that make us uncomfortable? I was uh, working in uh, the uh, village in Alaska on the Yukon River, and it was a muddy area, and we didn't have any concrete, so the community had made basketball courts for the young people out of boards, like big decks, like big treated lumber decks. And we played outdoor basketball on those decks, um, and there was, the sun never went down in the summertime when I was up there salmon fishing. And so we would play basketball late into the night, 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. We're still playing basketball. And we were looking around for some guys to play. And I was playing ball with some Eskimo guys, talking 19, 20, 21-year-old guys, playing basketball with them. And we needed a few more guys. And I, I looked across and saw some guys walking down the side of the road there. And I said, get those guys. How about those guys? Oh, they stood up, the Eskimo guys. No. Well, why not? Uh, they're Aleut. So? Oh, he said, oh, he said, they got them high cheekbones. Oh, I said, okay, okay, I got it. I don't play basketball with guys with high cheekbones either, you know? It's like, what is wrong with us? And God forbid that that would ever be in the church. The shape of lips, the shape of hips, the color of skin. What are you talking about? And that's what's happening. They're divided by, by a little bit of racial influence here. Identifying with the Greek culture, identifying with the Jewish community. And so they accused the disciples of neglecting their widows, the Grecian ones. So you're taking care of the Hebrew Jews first. Let's continue to read. 
It was important enough of an element, evidently, with the daily distribu distribution of food to the widows. So this was very important. The widows needed to be fed. They needed to be cared for. And the church was caring for the widows. But notice it was an important enough that the 12, verse 2, summoned the full number of the disciples. So they gathered all of the spiritual leaders. I take that to be more than just the 12 disciples. They gathered all of the spiritual leaders and they had a council. They had a powwow because it was such an important matter to them. There was going to be schism in the church if they didn't deal with it. And they said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now I want you to notice that the feeding of widows is really not my point this morning. Here's the point. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among them you seven men, among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we, the, the spiritual leadership team said, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said was good. Notice uh, that the congregation was grumbling, but the change was good. They made a good change in the church. They spread the workload. And notice we have with apostolic modeling, we have apostolic a basis in the early church to reflect in them that the ministry of prayer was so important that they, that they were going to neglect it for feeding the widows. They decided they needed help feeding the widows so that they could just pray. Now I notice that there's a tension here. On the one hand, you set yourself up for criticism if you're a spiritual leader, right? Uh, the men come in, or the men and women come in, we need to help feed the widows, it's time to give lunch, we need to cook food. Hey, where's the pastor? Where's all the guys? Oh, they're back there on their knees having prayer. What? We're busy, they're praying. No, they're busy, they're working. We don't think like that, do we? We do not think like that. I think we're wrong. Now, this is not license for laziness. You got to mow your lawn. You got to dress your kids. You got to get up and go to work. You can't say, we say, oh, look at that Drew, man. He's it's a slob. He doesn't mow his lawn. He doesn't, he doesn't dress his kids very well. He's, what's he doing? He's praying all the time. He's praying all the time. You can't do that. It's not an excuse. But notice that it was so important that even as they were doing such a valuable thing as feeding the widows, they said this has to stop because we're not praying enough. Interesting, isn't it? And so the conclusion is, prayer is the priority. Prayer is the priority. So they did, they appointed these men, and then they set them before the apostles, laid their hands on them. In verse 7 it says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. And so God did a work as they served one another in the church, and as they prayed together, and as they made prayer the priority, God continued to grow the church. So you have a ministry? Teach a Sunday school class? You praying for it? You praying it up? You teaching junior church? Oh yeah, you were up till 11.30 last night because you remembered you had junior church and you had to paint those stupid popsicle sticks and, and get them ready to put these little poster things up together or run to Walmart and get these little plants so that they can take a little plant home to their mom and you can't wait until the end of the month so you're not in the junior church rotation anymore. Did you pray for your junior church? You praying for those kids? Did you do the work of prayer? 
You see, we are all about busyness all the time. And it's our culture because we don't want to be called lazy and we don't want to look like we're negligent. Where's the prayer? Where's the prayer? With apostolic precedent, it's held up before us that one of the first tasks of the spiritual leadership of the church is to be a prayer. My house shall be a house of prayer, he says. If the spiritual leaders aren't praying, who's praying? It's convicting, isn't it? So why is it that prayer is so easy to neglect? Text box. Why is it so easy to neglect prayer? Well, I've already referenced one of it, and number one is, is because prayer is hard work. Prayer is hard work. You say, it's not hard work at all. It's like I can't stay awake. Now, you ever really pray earnestly for 30 minutes straight? An hour. I was referencing to our LDP guys, our leadership development class. We're doing a systematic theology and, and, and we're wrapping up a study from all winter on the attributes of God, all the attributes of God, and we were applying them to our lives. How do the attributes of God apply to my, how does it apply to my life? And so we were going to spend an hour and 20 minutes, an hour and 30 minutes studying in our textbooks, our Bibles, our notebooks, studying God for an hour and 30 minutes. And it seemed like a lot. And it occurred to me, you know, we can watch a football game for two and a half hours just like that. We can watch a basketball game for an hour and a half, two hours just like that. Why is it foreign to us to study God straight for an hour and a half with full attention? Furthermore, when's the last time we prayed for an hour and a half? We just don't do that. You know, part of the reason we don't do that is hard work. It's hard work. Secondly, prayer feels deceptively unproductive, doesn't it? Doesn't prayer feel deceptively unproductive? I mean, if you're cutting firewood and stacking firewood, you got something to show for yourself. If you're just praying, well, what you been doing, man? I don't know what all happened an hour and a half of prayer. And maybe part of the reason we don't know is we've never prayed for an hour and a half. But it's just like it's unproductive time. And what you do is you sit down to pray, and I know it's, I'm plagued with it. I sit down to pray, and there is no time I can fill out a to-do list better than when I sit down to focus prayer. If I want to fill out a to-do list, all I have to do is get on my knees and say, I'm going to pray for the next 30 minutes. And my mind starts going crazy. Oh, you got to return that call to Lewis. And you got you to get those papers organized for so-and-so. And so-and-so gave you a CD and 39 other people gave you DVDs to watch. And they want to report on it. And another guy gave you a book to read. And you got to get back to him. And you never get back to him. And, and my to-do list is just cranking, man. And you got to preach Sunday. And this is Saturday night. And here we go. Does that work that way for you? It's just unbelievable. And we just... We want to be productive and we feel unproductive. And thirdly, I think prayer is contrary. It is contrary to our natural inclinations, isn't it? Prayer is just contrary to our natural inclinations. We're kinetic people. We want to move. Or we want to be entertained. Or we want to rest. We don't want to stay focused. And we don't need a better illustration than what we have in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night our Lord was betrayed, do we? Oh, what a privilege. To have the Lord Jesus, the one around whom the entire universe revolves, King Jesus, in the flesh, and to have been his partner for three years. And he says, boys, come up to the garden. Would you pray with me tonight? 
He said, what a privilege. I get to pray with Jesus. And they sit down to pray and they go, right? They immediately fall asleep. And our Lord comes over and he shakes them awake and says, can't you watch him pray with me even one hour? Why? Because you go to sleep when you pray, right? I remember in the old days, my dad used to talk about my Uncle Harold when they were planting churches up in South Dakota in the 50s and early 60s. They had all-night prayer meetings. Now, what is an all-night prayer meeting? Are you out of your mind? No, you just don't really believe in prayer, I guess. I'm not sure why they did that. I, they were longing for God to move. Now, I get up a little bit early and I want to pray and get my Bible on my lap and I know I've got important meetings and you know, counseling and staff and planning and preparation and any number of things. And then, Lord, all the things that I don't know are going to happen today that I need to be ready for. And I begin to pray, Lord, would you just bless that marriage and that family and those kids. And about 17, 18 minutes go by and I jerk awake in my chair. I think, man, I got to get ready and go to the office. And there went my prayer time. Is that you or is that just me? Is... It's against our natural inclinations, isn't it? So maybe we need to walk while we pray, or maybe we need to get to where we develop the discipline of prayer at a whole new level. And we haven't because we don't. We haven't developed the discipline of prayer because we don't pray very much. Well, let's move on. It's too convicting. Um, Don't give up a parable. Don't get distracted. That's a problem. Okay, prayer takes perseverance and prayer is the priority. Let's very quickly, and we can do this in just a couple minutes. Let's look at our third important spiritual truth about prayer. Don't make it complicated. Don't make it complicated, this thing of faith and doubt. This is Paul's instruction. So when you finish the book of Acts, you have read about the church planting deeds and the church is established and you get to the book of Romans next. And if you want to do that, you can just kind of thumb through. So Romans, that's the Apostle Paul is now saved in Acts 6. In Acts chapter 6, the Apostle Paul was still Saul of Tarsus. He wasn't even born again yet. And, and then he gets saved, and now he's writing letters, and he is the authority on church world. And so he writes to the church at Rome, and that's Romans. And then he writes 1 Corinthians. They're all messed up. And he writes them, and then he writes a second letter because they're thick-headed. And then he writes to Galatian believers because they want to go back to Judaism. And then we get to Ephesians. And uh, just notice in Ephesians chapter 6, if you're thumbing through with me, Ephesians 6, um, we'll just begin with verse 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, Ephesians six seventeen, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Here it is, verse 18. Here's Paul's principle from his instruction. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. So how, how often are we supposed to pray? When are we supposed to pray? All the time. We're supposed to pray all the time. Pray all the time in the Spirit to that end to keep alert with all, there's that key word again, perseverance, perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Who are we supposed to pray for? All the saints. That's why you have to fill out that blue card today so that you can get your name in the directory so that we can all pray for each other. How's that for a shameless ad for that? I mean, you got to pray for people. We're going to pray for all the people and we're going to pray all the time. And it occurred to me, this is in Philippians. Flip to the next book, the next letter to Philippi. Chapter 4, this is not in your notes. Chapter 4, verse 6. 
I mean, it is obvious. I missed it. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be met. What are we supposed to pray about? What are we supposed to pray about? Say everything. I'll ask you the question again. What are we supposed to pray about? Everything. When are we supposed to pray? Say all the time. Who are we supposed to pray for? All the people. Whoa. Whoa. Colossians chapter 4, flip the page. Colossians 4, 2, continue. Here's that word, steadfastly. That's a perseverance word, isn't it? Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful. Stay awake with thanksgiving. Flip the pages. 1 Thessalonians 5, there it is. You can memorize a verse this morning. And you say, Edward, I haven't memorized a verse forever. You've memorized a verse today. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. Pray without ceasing. There it is. You can memorize scripture. Pray without ceasing. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. So how do you do that? I take it that we are to just be we are to just be men and women, followers of Christ, who just live in the context of prayer. It should be a natural thing to pray all the time. Right? And sometimes prayer makes us feel uncomfortable. We are to just be men and women of prayer. I know you have to keep your eyes open to, to drive to work. I know you have to do your work. I know you can't be on your knees praying all the time. I know you can't be in a, in a back room praying at church or in a classroom praying with a group of people. But we can, we can groom in us, can't we? A mindset that we are communing with our Heavenly Father. And we're continually going to Him. Not like the unjust judge trying to punch Him in the eye to get His attention. But that we have a Heavenly Father who invites us into His presence. And that we are welcome there at all time. And we have Jesus Christ, the Righteous One, who's interceding on behalf. And we are to run there. And we're to live there. And we're to pray there. And maybe one of the reasons that we don't have faith is because we don't pray. And maybe if we begin to pray in faith, the faith will come. Because it doesn't say anywhere how to grow that kind of faith or how to overcome doubt. In fact, that's one reason why Christian bookstores sell hot copies of lots of books when it's like 17 ways to grow your faith and have an effective prayer life. When the answer is you just got to pray, dude. You got to pray. Because the Bible doesn't say how to do it. And when the Bible doesn't say how to do it and it gives it as a directive, by the way, the conclusion there is that prayer is an act of obedience. Prayer is an act of obedience. And anytime the Bible tells us to do something and doesn't tell us how to do it, guess what you can rest assured of? You know how to do it. You already know how to do it. Because if you didn't know how to do it and the Bible told you to do it, then it would be frustrating. And God doesn't frustrate His people. And so when He says... Pray. You don't need to know how. Just pray. It's talking to God. You know how to pray. You will naturally, as a believer in Christ, with the Holy Spirit indwelling you, you will pray. And as I referenced earlier, perhaps our prayerlessness is directly related to our faithlessness, as well as our faithlessness is directly linked to our prayerlessness. And as we become a praying church, we will become a faith-filled church. And doubt will diminish. And now it's up to us to pray. Amen? Let's stand. There is a prayer meeting tonight at 6 o'clock.
in room 106. We do not take attendance. It is a grace system. But is this place going to be called a house of prayer or what? And so, Father, we need your help because um, we don't like hard work. and We don't like what seems like a lack of results and it's hard for us to persevere. And our natural inclination is to be busy, 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 distracted, distracted. Father, would you show us how to become a people of prayer? Would you forgive us for our faithlessness, which is so magnified by our prayerlessness? And would you forgive our prayerlessness, which is so documented by our faithlessness? And would you begin a work now in each of us and in this pastor? And may this place become a house of prayer. In Jesus' name I pray.